The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. And what better time to talk about a bad book, nearly guaranteed to win many awards. This is the Reading in the Time of Monsters podcast. I believe this is episode five. Uh, The subject of our podcast will be R.F. Kuang's Babel. But first, I must introduce our first guest, Kit. This is uh, Kit is a Kit is a good friend of mine. We've known each other for some number of years uh, through working in DSA Boston. She now lives in South Philly. She's a lifelong fantasy sci-fi fan, lover of uh, history and literature as well. Uh, future social worker, and you know I think she's going to bring a lot to the pod. Kit, you you want to say hello or say anything before we get into the meat of the pod? Sure. Thank you so much, Peter. That was really uh, that was really kind. I wanted to mention that we actually met before Boston DSA because you were moderate. You were uh, facilitating the Jacobin Reading Group. That's right. Um, right. From your specific easy chair at the uh, left wing space, we usually met in. That's correct. <laughs> I mean, I got there early every time, specifically to get that easy chair. If anyone else had showed up as early, they could have gotten it. It just lent you a lot of gravitas and uh, made made me feel especially good when you did not dismiss my contributions as a as a non-historian. <laughs> oh no, nobody who would do such a thing. Right. Uh, anyway, some momentary uh, self crit. We like to begin reading in the time of monsters with uh, self crit. Kit doesn't have to do that. She has nothing to self crit for. Uh, but I'm going to do some short self crit. Uh, first, audio quality. Uh, the last episode about Confederacy of Dunces, the audio quality, not great. I apologize. I don't know why that happened. Uh, for future episodes, I'm going to work on that, try other recording modalities. Already doing that now, using a somewhat different software. Uh, the next self-criticism, uh, also going to try and keep it brief so as to not waste Kit's time too much, is on content. I think I should have pointed out something important. Uh, So I mentioned how when we describe the main character of a Confederacy of Dunces, Ignatius J. Riley, a massive uh, 30-something who lives with his mother, doesn't have a job, uh, rants and raves against the modern world, he sounds like a 4chan troll. And there's something to that, and I do think that Tool actually deserves uh, some credit for prescience, I actually think it's possible to overstate the connection. I actually think that the differences between uh, the character of Ignatius J. Riley and uh, the actual real-life 4chan troll, the neo-Nazi, you know, your anime Nazis, actually points to what Tool accomplished there, which is that this was the height of high modernism, of the Camelot era, confidence in liberal society, was high, you know, this is about when Mad Men starts, if I remember right. Uh, American mainstream liberal society looked good. It felt reasonably good. Uh, it was very confident in itself. It was before Vietnam, Watergate, stagflation, all the other things that would come to st- shake its confidence. So I think there, that's important context. I think the character of Ignatius J. Riley, by no means admirable, uh, well, not totally admirable, but I think had some admirable courage and originality 
because it would take a lot more to be that way in 1962 or whenever, you know, the early 60s, whenever this was supposed to take place, than to uh, do so in the 2010s or uh, 2020s, right? He was doing it in public, in front of people who he would probably see again, uh, definitely would see again as the events of a Confederacy of Dunces unfolded. He did not have a whole subculture to base it on, so that took more originality, whereas your contemporary right-wing troll uh, has been nurtured by the anonymity of the internet. Uh, moreover, Ignatius Riley actually knows stuff. Uh, I think that a fair number of journalists are, are thrown by the esoteric references that alt-right trolls sometimes make to figures from far-right history, but Speaking as someone who knows a little bit about the history, I could tell you that their knowledge is usually really paper thin, but that wasn't the case with Ignatius Riley, who really knew about medieval history, Catholicism, philosophy, and so on. Uh, beyond just pedantry, I think few of our internet-based ideology enthusiasts on the right, and sadly, a, a fair number on the left, uh, really don't have that kind of depth of knowledge. And I think that's a reasonably good segue into this novel. Uh, it's a novel published in last year, 2022, called Babel by R.F. Kwong. I believe it has some subtitles, but my policy with subtitles is that I pretty much only include them for nonfiction. For instance, when I introduce the book Moby Dick, I don't refer to it as Moby Dick or The Whale. I think that's unnecessary. Uh, so I'm not going to rattle off Babel's uh, subtitles, sorry. Um, RF I Kwong, feel like, wait, or... can we just, can we just, I, I will read the subtitle just to give All folks right. a sense of what is being advertised here through this title. Okay, go and the for ways it. In, yeah. So um, Babel, colon, or the necessity of violence, colon, an arcane history of the Oxford translators revolution. Yeah, two subtitles, that's uh, well beyond what, I, what I'll do for any novel, including Moby Dick, which is one of my favorites. So if it had two subtitles, get out of here, Herman. Um, yeah, I think it's an attempt, obviously it's an attempt to create the vibe of a long, epic 19th century novel of ideas. Yes, yes. I think that's correct. Kwong is a writer whose pre novels have all had historical background, historical themes. I think she's best known for the Poppy War trilogy, a trilogy set in a secondary world. So it's not quite Earth, but many of the nations and cultures in it reflect nations and cultures that existed on Earth in the 19th and 20th centuries, specifically a sort of downtrodden version of China between the Qing Empire and the and the Chinese Republic, roughly, that has to fight off a version of Japan and also versions of Western uh, exploiters using uh, newly rediscovered magic. There, these novel and dragons, I believe, enter into it. Uh, these novels are quite popular. Uh, Kwong has been nominated for many awards for them. Won many awards. Uh, Babel is not her newest novel. I believe she has a new one out now, uh, but it came out last year. She's she's written quite a lot for her 
uh, and published quite a lot for her 26 years. Yes. So she started writing her first novel when she was 19 mm. uh, in college. And the first published novel. Yeah, yes. And it was published oh, when wow. she was 22. Okay. So, um, uh, Peter, would it be all right for me to talk a bit about her educational and family background? Because uh, I think it's very relevant to our analysis of the book. Sure. And we do like to talk about authors and, and where they come from and, and what their story is. So go for it. Mm-hmm. So she was born in China and immigrated with her family um, when she was four years old. Uh, she comes from a family. Uh, she It says her maternal grandfather fought for Chiang Kai-shek. Mm. Um, so that's uh, something, just an interesting historical note. Um, she has been in elite education uh, for, I think, pretty much her entire life. She went to Georgetown. She went to... She graduated from Georgetown, went straight to the University of Cambridge. Then she went to Oxford, got one master's degree in each place. She's currently at Yale for a PhD. So by my understanding, um, she has not, as an adult, been in any other environment besides an academic environment, which I think is like interesting and important context here. Um, and when she was not actively in an academic environment, she was spending her summers working as a debate coach. Mm. Um, so this is someone who at 26 um, has has not left school for any period of time. Mm. Well, you know, uh, I can I can kind of tug at my collar in reaction <laughs> to that, uh, you know, because that, that would have roughly described me at 26. I certainly hadn't published four or five novels by that point. Oh, of course. Uh, I just mean, I think that all of her novels are heavily concerned with school environments. Yes. Uh, and that's kind of the emotion. The emotional resonance has to do with the relationships between classmates and between teachers mm. and students. And I mm-hmm. think that that is, I don't know, it's obviously yeah. one of the criticisms has been that she is overly autobiographical. And mm. I think that I think there's definitely something to that, though. Writing about school in and of itself is not a flaw with her writing. There's yeah. other things we'll discuss later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You actually have a whole theory related to that, which I think is uh, an important part of this pod. Mm-hmm. When we This pod episode, when we get to it, I, I really want to dig into it there. So, uh, yes. So, Babel takes place uh, in the 1830s, but not the 1830s as you or I know it or possibly don't, uh, reader. It it's a 1830s where at some point I believe uh, around the time of the Roman Empire a form of magic was discovered that relies on the ambiguities of translation. Uh, that is, if you can come up with words with untranslatable concepts from various languages and inscribe them on silver bars. So one word in one language on one side of the bar, another word in another language on the other, and the gap between what those two things mean in the mind of someone who can fluently speak both languages can produce a magical effect. So one of the one of the examples that Kwong provides us relatively early in the book is the uh, difference between the Greek word for boat and the English word ship, where the ancient Greek word 
had more to do with the biological uh, similarities between a ship and sea life. So when you put that Greek word on one side of the silver bar, you put the other word on the other, uh, the English word ship on the other, and you you get someone who knows both and, and can do the magic to concentrate real hard on it and then put it on a boat that's fishing, you'll catch more fish. Uh, that's obviously a relatively unexciting example, but that's a basic example of how this magic works. Uh, despite this uh, change in the rules of reality, 1830s Earth still looks relatively a lot like Earth in our 1830s. We run into our main character, who we will come to know as Robin, in the Chinese city of Canton, or Guangzhou. Uh, I believe they call it Canton, most of the book. Uh, he, his parent, his mother and the rest of his family have died of plague. He is rescued by a British man who turns out to be an Oxford professor and somebody who is, uh, part of a translation institute because of what this magic can do. Translators are very important. He enlists Robin into the, uh, translation academy uh, after educating him in various ways uh, and Robin goes to Oxford as a young man goes to the translating academy he meets various people and he realizes the terrible truths of empire uh, empire is is much like it I want to make this really abundantly clear reader regardless of what we think about this book Regardless of what we think about its politics, I think Kit and I stand united in saying that empire in general, and the British Empire in particular, some of the worst forces in human history, uh, you, you can make the argument that human history, as we know it, is actually in many respects inseparable from empire, but that doesn't make it right. Uh, the British Empire in particular uh, created tremendous amounts of chaos and suffering for no good reason, uh, if there can ever be a good reason for such things, and moreover, uh, held itself up as this model of morality and rationality that its defenders today still try to uh, imitate, and that to me makes the the, mor the fake morality involved really does make it that much worse. Yeah, so I would say that the British Empire probably holds the record for doing the most evil in the world for the longest amount of time to the right. most people. Yeah, other I don't even think it's really a like, no. which isn't to say that other there are other there weren't other states and empires that are doing horrible evil, including right. the United States, for obviously sure. where we live. Yes. Um, but the British Empire like is defined, I think, by that gap between this extremely right. high-minded civilizing rhetoric and then just like grinding violence and brutality right yes that's so whatever else you think we're, we're going with dear listener uh please believe us when we say that we despise the british empire and so eventually does robin and his three out of his four friends uh he he makes some friends and we'll talk about these characters uh and he meets somebody who 
keys him in to the existence of an anti-imperialist group called the Hermes Society, made up of mostly uh, other translation students from other downtrodden parts of the world who are attempting to use the magic they have learned to aid the parts of the world that Britain is exploiting. Things come to a head when Robin and some of his companions are taken by his professor, the professor who, you know, uh, took him away from Canton to begin with, to go to China and basically start the Opium Wars. uh, Or the first Opium War, rather. He uh, winds up, I suppose I should say spoilers, you know, I, I consider all of my uh, podcast about fiction to be spoiler zones. So here, here it is. Spoilers, folks. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Uh, kills his uh, professor slash father slash uh, person who brought him into the Oxford Institute. Uh, he winds up having to kind of run away from Oxford. He rallies sort of the other Hermes Institute people. He is betrayed uh, by one of his four friends, namely the one of his four friends who is not from a downtrodden group. She's just a British lady. Uh, a bunch of them die. Uh, Robin helps lead a rebellion within Oxford with the help of other uh, oppressed nationality students and also uh, a smattering of working class radicals like the Luddites. Uh, the army comes and... The thing is, uh, you know, maybe this is somewhere between, I think, the issues with the plot and my own lack of preparedness when I have to go back and say that the uh, the tower in which the Translation Institute is held has these special silver reverberating bars that intensify all of the silver magic going around Britain and making it work better, I guess. It's it's kind of vague. If if you've folks, if you've read um, the Broken Earth series, it's actually like not unlike the sort of nodes of tectonic control that exist in that universe. So it's a situation where one person who has the ability to do a specific type of magic, if you take out one node in the network, you can do uh, really serious damage. Right, so this is like the network node, like pretty much the only one in the world, and uh, in sort of a suicidal gesture, uh, Robin uses his magic to destroy the tower, destroy the node, uh, bring most of England's silver magic down, and that is the titular translator's revolt, Um, and yeah, that's more or less the plot. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty long book. Uh, how, how many pages is it in his, I read it on the Kindle. Uh, so I'm not I sure. I also it read it on Kindle, but page it's, count. hold on. Let's have a look. 545. Yes. So pretty beefy. Um, not the beefiest, but beefy. Uh, and, and we do get a fair amount of description of, various things uh particularly i would say actually for me one of the closer things to a highlight of this book is that kwong who has experience as a translator is studying this kind of thing i believe academically 
and has done translation work, does talk a fair amount about translation, the various theories of translation that are out there and that were out there in the 1830s, because actually uh, languages are the sort of scientific study of language is a pretty old one. Uh, and I mean that in like a, in a good way. It's been going on for a long time in a pretty rigorous sense. And, uh, you know, she clearly has delved a certain extent into that. And so the kind of geeking out over language is, I think, one of the better parts. And there's a fair amount of it. Uh, but I figure we can... Uh, Kit, why don't you tell us if there's anything that I'm missing about the plot rundown or if there's if you want to relate your experience with the book? Oh, sure. So um, I don't think I have any major additions to the plot rundown, uh, except that the way you described it makes it sound a little bit more fluid and logical than it actually reads. Mm. Um so what Peter did not specifically say is that the way Robin finds out about the Hermes Society <sighs> is that his older half-brother mm. through his evil British Oxford professor father just shows up uh, using magic during his first week of school um, and demands that he either join, that he join the Hermes Society or lose the chance to do so forever. Um, yeah, uh... and I would say that so, so, so that is how a lot of events in the story happen. They don't have that sense of naturally flowing from the situations and the characters. Um, that kind of I think is really essential to a good adventure story, right? Mm. Like, like, anyway, but I went on an interesting journey with this book because, for context, I really disliked the Poppy War. Um, I did not finish the first book. Um, that's not a lot of people are like, oh, I always finish books and I didn't finish this book. I abandon books I don't like all the time, like gleefully. Mm. Um, and I started reading it actually kind of on the recommendation of um, R.S. Benedict uh, in uh, her sort of famous, infamous uh, podcast about Squeakor. She mm. gave it as an example of something that was definitely not Squeakor mm. um, and was really great. So I was like, well, I agree with a lot of her opinions about writing. Maybe we like the same sorts of books. And I gave it a try and I was unable to finish it. So it is, again, written by a 19-year-old. Mm. It reads as something written by a talented 19-year-old. Mm. Uh the prose is like fairly studded with cliche that often results in mixed metaphors because of mm. the presence of two cliches in adjacent mm. sentences. Um, it's, I will say the main character is like a fairly interesting character, but again, events kind of don't unfold. She just kind of makes things happen as the author. They don't really unfold. Um, and the point at which I kind of gave up was that she, be, uh, when she went to basically the like, uh, school of the Americas for this uh, China imperial analog. Mm -hmm. uh, um, she falls under the tutelage of an ageless, white-haired, um, sort of uh, ditzy professor who uh, does drugs to get magical powers and uh, falls out of trees as comic relief. And I was mm. like, this this is which is just like and i was like this is too anime and yeah. to be fair, i love anime and manga but 
I don't think some of the visual humor of anime and manga translates well to text. And I was just pretty. Yeah. Anyway, so I did not like the Poppy War. Um, I actually went into this novel, Babel, with a certain sense of level of optimism. Uh, she's developed a lot as a writer since then. She wrote two other books after the Poppy War. Um, a lo- this book was very, very critically acclaimed. I've gotten it recommended to me multiple times by lots of other people in my life who read science fiction and fantasy. Um, and during the first section where Robin, as a young boy, um, has lost his mother, lost his entire family in this, I think it's actually cholera epidemic. Mm, uh, yes. And is taken, sort of swept up by uh, um, a man he does not yet know is actually his father um, mm-hmm. and is kind of scouting him and sort of implicitly like created him, both in the sense of ha- uh, like reproducing <laughs> with mm-hmm. a woman who had fallen on hard times robin's mother um but also provided him with a tutor and books and things like that he has created him to be useful to the british empire as a translator um and this section where where child robin is sort of swept up in events he doesn't fully understand and uh kuang actually has a pretty light touch in terms of robin doesn't understand it but we the adult readers do but it's not hammered in um there's a real sense of like loss and confusion and excitement and interest. And then of course um, an extremely devastating scene where we see the actual nature of Robin's quote unquote adoption by his actual father um, when he is beaten terribly for missing a lesson due to getting too caught up in a book. Hmm. Um and I thought the section was actually really well done. Um, and I remember texting you about it saying, I think this book is going to yeah. be really good. Um, like, this is really moving. Uh, there's a wonderful scene where uh, Robin has his first experience um, uh, being forced to translate between an imperial authority and an ordinary Chinese worker. Um, and the level of discomfort he feels about basically conveying a message where this um, older senior man who he feels deferential to as a as an elder um he's being denied passes on a ship to which he has every right to be on and mm-hmm. robin who is quite small at this point is forced to translate this back and forth um and i just thought that was an excellent probably a better encapsulation yeah. of the themes of the book that than anything that happens afterwards yeah and the rest of the uh 500 pages and it shows the themes instead of telling. I know that's such like uh, basic writing advice, but it, the reason it's basic writing advice is because people often ignore it. And this is a book that tells a lot and shows very little. So in this scene, um, Robin is being escorted onto the ship that will take him to London by his sort of kidnapper, adoptive father slash real father slash master, um, Dr. Love, Professor Lovell. And there is an elder uh, Chinese man at the dock who is also trying to board the ship and has all of his paperwork in order to board the ship. And the ship's person who lets people on the boat is refusing to let him on, obviously on racial grounds. And all of the adults present are pressuring Robin to translate, um, even though he's a very little boy. He's, but he's bilingual in Cantonese and English. Um, and 
the kind of emotional turmoil he goes through of knowing what he's communicating to this man is is wrong and his feelings of like horror at having to do this particularly to like an elder who he respects like a senior person um and also his feeling that if he doesn't translate that nothing will change but you know maybe the situation could get worse so at the point where i read that scene i was like oh this is going to be a good book because this is a very effective scene it's not ham-fisted the emotions are very like justified the situation is seems entirely realistic uh and so from that point i was like maybe this will be really good um and i i sent text to you and voice mm-hmm. memos peter uh saying as much and then you started to get increasingly distressed and uh <laughs> uh I don't want to say angry, but distressed and and disappointed uh, voice memos for me as I continued to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I would suggested to Kit that we both read this book and talk about it when I was uh, as I was sort of formulating the idea for this whole podcast. And I too had read the Poppy War, and I too didn't care for it, and I too had listened to the Right Good episode on Squeakcore and its sequel episode and i think it's an interesting concept uh that i think we could use to sort of work more with but it did surprise me to find that the pop that poppy war was like on their official list like their white list essentially <laughs> of uh works that were definitely not Squeakcore and that were pretty good uh because i remember thinking that it actually sort of shared some structural similarities with the works of uh, your... I haven't read any Chuck Wendig, who's one of the relatively few people who they say is definitely Squeakor, but like John Scalzi or whoever else, fairly shallow, uh, narrow, emotional range. But I will say, I mean, we can get into all that later. We don't need to yeah. get to it. Yeah. I mean, I think what I would say, first of all, is I think that the concept <clears throat> of Squeakor lumps together every kind of uh, contemporary SFF book that this uh, sort of coterie dislikes. Mm. Um, and a lot of them actually are just not related to each other. Like, I think mm. that the books that they are not naming which are Squeakcore are sharply different from those of like John Scalzi or Chuck Wendig though. I wouldn't mm. know because I've never read their books. Just yeah. I guess, yeah. I guess we'll, we'll, we'll leave that for later. Yeah, sorry. I still <laughs> think there's some validity to the concept, but in any event, I was curious, that made me kind of curious to look into Kwong's later work uh, to see if anything changed to discuss uh, what all this might mean what it means for the for the genre and i didn't really i i got those messages from kit early on and she's right i i read i read a little bit after uh she read them those scenes and they were good and then i was thinking well okay maybe we'll have an episode i didn't i'll say right now i didn't particularly anticipate the babble would be good when i first suggested that we both read it in that, so it's sort of this emotional roller coaster for both of us, but I think maybe more for Kit. And <laughs> uh, and then I'm hearing from Kit, oh, it's actually pretty good. And I remember thinking, well, all right, I guess we'll have an episode about you know improvement in writing or something. I don't know. 
And then I believe I was I, I was I was on my way to dinner. I believe I I decided to take myself to dinner to treat myself at the Brazilian place, and uh, you know, listening to Orinoco. Oh no, not Orinoco. Different one, different one. Yeah, and that's a Venezuelan place. You're but, right. Um, oh my god, edit this out. <laughs> edit. Um, but uh, and, and listen to these me- increasingly distraught messages. So you know, I set to work reading it myself. And started to see what Kit meant. Um, in particular, so we have these characters. Uh, and the characters, after sort of some pretty good character moments in those first bits, we really don't learn that much more about them, even as more and more are introduced. And they really don't have much depth and pretty much all of them are exactly who you would think they are from the beginning, from when Kwong first introduces them. And in some cases, Kwong actually goes out of her way to tell you uh, in like an authorial aside what their character is. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> And I think another aspect of that, which I, to be clear, I want to observe, I actually went through and read some Goodread reviews after finishing the book because I kind of wanted to understand what people who really liked it got out of it and what people who had a similar reaction to me got out of it. And one of the Goodreads reviewers, I'm stealing this observation, observed that the actual friendship among the four is never actually shown developing. Mm. Um, It's just like we are informed that they have become very good friends and they have inside jokes and they hang out and study a lot. And, oh, they always go to the same bakery. The book is like weirdly obsessed with scones, which are (laughs) far from the best British bakery. It's a country that has actually a very rich baking tradition, as is exemplified by the hit television show. And they they love that. A lot about scones. Um, so I'd like to sort of contrast this to a book that's like specifically called out, which I'm sure was called out both in like the pitch and is called out in the copy as like an inspiration, Mm. uh, for the book. So we get two books that are called out here, um, which is uh. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is set during around the same time period. That's by uh, Susanna Clark. Yes, which is also about um, magic. Mm-hmm. and In a historical setting, specifically early 19th century England. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Except I think that right. during during Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, like the Napoleonic Wars are like actively happening. Yes. Um, uh, and then another book that's mentioned is Donna Tartt's uh, a secret history, which I really love. Um, and one of the things that's really special about a secret history is that you get a sense of who the characters are and who they're trying to be through their interactions with one another. Mm-hmm. Like there's just an enormous amount of push and pull between different people's personalities. You have to reconsider people's motives. Mm-hmm. Uh even when you, when you discover something new about a character, it might be shocking, but you're also like, oh, that makes sense. Like, that book is so appealing because of the ways the characters interact and also because of its, like, extreme sensuality, mm. which kind of you as the reader experience, participate in, and allow you to understand why 
the narrator is drawn to why this protagonist is drawn to this group of people and to this life that he feels that they represent because mm-hmm. even things that are unpleasant like him like almost freezing to death over winter break or hangovers or things like that they're so vivid yeah um and in this book like the allure of entering the british establishment as a sort of like halfway between a participant and the servant as a translator there's the only (laughs) the only things that are discussed in terms of actually explaining the appeal are scones yeah scones the uh you know friendship the this friendship and we'll talk about who these characters are in a moment um uh buildings i guess i i seem to remember you know she talks about the beauty of the built environment but yeah nothing more uh, a nothing that seems particularly uh that compelling to a to a teenager who in the which is what these characters are when they begin and b not very sensually described this is once again a situation where you are told these things rather than really uh being shown them right so it's not as though she really gets into like the sense the the profound sensory experience of eating a scone i suppose there's limits uh to (laughs) to that but um in any event, the characters, so the the main character, the viewpoint character, is Robin. Robin names himself, more or less. Uh, he had a name in Chinese, but... Uh, we never learn it. We don't learn is, it. Yeah. Which is a little <laughs> weird. And Professor Lovell uh, makes him pick an English name. He is a pretty good example of what I call a perspective dullard, which is, <laughs> uh, in oh a God. lot of these popular fiction books... Uh, the main character the perspective character is the least interesting character around doesn't have much going for him psychologically even as he and it is usually he goes through all of these events that you figure would probably like uh, make an impact the he the 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 er perspective dullard is of course harry potter by far the least interesting of his cohort and someone who maintains the same basic character despite going through things that you figure would really uh, uh, at least have some kind of an impact other than to make him, you know, a, a slightly crabby, I guess. Uh, I would cop. say, right, eventually a cop. Uh, I would say James Holden from the... Uh, expanse universe also something of a perspective dullard and the quarries come kind of close to almost saying as much they're a little can more I, self-aware can i actually provide a, co- a point of contrast because again you the comparison sorry <laughs> the comparison to a secret history has been invited and so one of the interesting things about the secret history is that the central character is very much not a perspective dullard mm. even though he is an outsider mm-hmm. and a something he does is the crux on which everything turns and everything falls apart. Like a choice he makes in order to secure his position in the gang. Right. Um, despite the fact that he 
gains nothing from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's an old book. I'm just going to say, obviously, he, he, like, kills the most annoying member of the group who's blackmailing mm-hmm. the others because they accidentally maybe killed a farmer while tripping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and, and, like, that's what leads to, like, basically how this group, like, like spirals spirals apart and his his perspective is also used like to capture this like sense of like resentment and desire and confusion and he he acts yeah even though he is also an observer right and robin so robin also in the end of the book near the end of the book makes a fate of like a fateful decision to Mm. turn to violence yes but it's entirely couched it, it it's entirely couched in terms of well this is the right thing to do and the plot is very carefully designed to make it clear that it is the right thing to do right it's not really that ambiguous and the only argument against it is that violence is bad and people will get hurt and i i just find that really frustrating because you have this group of ostensible revolutions they do not actually have a revolution it's a revolt it's an uprising. It's mm. not a revolution. Revolutions mm. require an actual overturning. Revolve. Mm. Yeah. Um, is that th- this group of, of people from very different places, obviously all of them are colonized. Many of them are people of color. There's one uh, white girl from Ireland who throws a potato at someone. Yeah, uh, shouts out. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thanks, Rebecca. <laughs> And, uh, like, they don't really have any important strategic or tactical disagreements beyond we should use violence or we should lobby parliament, Mm. which is such a ridiculous caricature of how actual political debates happen inside liberatory political movements and has nothing to do with the actual debates that actual anti-imperialists and abolitionists and everyone else working for libertarian politics in the early 19th century were actually talking about like you don't have to imagine what colonized people were saying about colonization and what black people were saying about slavery and but like you don't have to like vent that from whole cloth we know they wrote a lot and it's very interesting and it's had a lot more it's got all the complexity and sophistication that is completely absent from the way the characters in this book think act and talk politically yeah um yeah we're, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about sort of the politics such as they are mm-hmm. uh the other character so there's the four some that kit alluded to that are kind of thrown together they're 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 the cohort at the Oxford Translators Institute when Robin gets there. So it consists of Robin, Rami, Letty, and Victoire. So Rami is is a Bengali who is Robin's becomes Robin's best friend. And he's largely there to provide the at least as far as the reading experience goes, kind of the flair and worldliness which Robin distinctly lacks. He's he's kind of charming and witty notionally, uh makes makes a lot of jokes. It's also sort of implied that maybe uh they're in love, Robin and yeah. Rami. Yeah. 
there's like this whisper of implication that I think plays out in perhaps two paragraphs, which to me, I mean, there's a very rich tradition of homosexuality at Oxford and Cambridge. Mm. Um, and some of the documents of that are things that uh, Kwong clearly has been influenced by, like the mm-hmm. Brideshead Revisited picnic scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't get any of that. And like also, of course, Rami comes from a very different culture that had its own attitudes towards like queer love. And we just, it just nothing happens, even though they're all like, like 18 to 22 when this book happens which is not like a time where people are like well known for not acting on their desires right and and they're none of their families are around yeah um you have victoire who is i know it's french i'm not doing it well but victoire who's uh haitian she's a she's a black haitian young lady who uh doesn't have much going on. She's she's one of the women in the story. She's very sensible. Yeah. And yeah. thoughtful and smart. I, I mean right. she's, she's not she's not like she's not allowed to have flaws. Yeah, yeah. All three of them endure racist abuse. You probably see more of it directed towards Rami and Robin, but Victoire might get the worst of it. And then there's Letty who in my mind is almost the most interesting character in the book, even though uh, Huang comes right out towards when she introduces uh, Letty and says, well, you know, I, I she's a white girl. She's a British white person from, uh, from an upper crust family who's has some kind of backstory involving Oxford. I guess her brother who died went there. But in any event, she's sent to Oxford, to the Translation Institute, which is the only part of the college that accepts women, uh, which is how Victoire is there. And Kwong comes out and says, that's the basic fundamental divide, and that will determine all else that comes. Uh, And, spoiler alert, Letty betrays them all. Uh, And you can tell... Once you start to pick up the pattern, and murders of, one of them, right, and kills one of them, and kills one of them in a way that does, and again, in a way that seems totally contrived. Like it's like, why does Letty have a gun all of a sudden? Right. <laughs> like, how did that happen? Yeah, there's uh, throughout the reason why she's interesting isn't her uh, to borrow something from a squeakor writer, her sudden and inevitable betrayal, but. Uh, her depiction throughout as the white girl who just doesn't get it. They all keep her around. She's part of the foursome, but she's consistently putting her foot in her mouth about racial sensitivity stuff and minimizing racism, right? Victoire or whoever will say, oh, X, Y, and Z happened because of racism, which I'm not sure was even a word at the time, but... There are a lot of things into that, later. that we're not. A lot of anachronisms. We can get into that if we want. But uh, and and Letty is consistently like, "Oh, you're just making too big of a deal of it. You're you're seeing stuff that's not there." And she's also uh, depicted as a as someone who will very quickly deploy the the most important weapon in the white arsenal, white lady tears, 
to when she's called on something, she inevitably makes it about her and cries and the others forgive her. There's a certain extent to which, you know, Harry Potter does loom over a lot of this along with the secret history and whatever else, but she's kind of a, she, she's the toxic version of a Hermione type character. Uh, she's, she's the Hermione as Karen, faithless, canting, fake progressive. And I would, the reason why I say she's one of the better characters is because there's much more feeling in Kwong's depiction of Letty than there is in the depiction of any of her other characters, I would say, including Robin, the author slash reader substitute, you know, the, the, the stand in for the, for them. Uh, so that interests me. And I think it's also pretty worth noting that Kwong's latest book uh, is about, I believe it's about a white woman who steals the academic work of an Asian woman and becomes famous from it or something like that, or pretends to be an Asian woman to become an academic success. She's friends with an Asian woman who dies and she's written a sort of her, her, her friend has written a sort of like semi-autobiographical novel and her friend surviving friend who's white, like adopts, a fake uh, Asian persona and I steals see. the book and edits it and gets it published. All right. So and... there's several extra steps. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. That, that was, it's not academic. It's like novel writing, but like the interesting oh. thing that people have pointed out is that the book is ostensibly literary adult fiction, which is actually not a market that Kwong has any experience of. So people have been, other views I read said that like it doesn't really know what it's satirizing because it doesn't actually have any familiarity with uh, the industry it's talking about. Uh, well, um, when's that ever stopped anyone? Yeah. In any um, event. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, so I was going to say, um, we had this notes document and the second line um, under the characters heading is vibeless mm. with six exclamation points, which I would say describes like, most of the characters to the extent that it's genuinely very difficult to remember who the other students at the Institute are. Yeah. Even when they've been mentioned multiple times, thankfully Kindle has a search function. So you can kind of find out if you right. forget. E- um, same, same with the other conspirators in the Hermes, because I'd love to tell you more about that, uh, about the Hermes group, the, the Hermes brotherhood or whatever it is, that's doing the rebelling, but beyond Robin's, mall ninja half-brother griffin uh they just really don't have it much in the way of characteristics yeah and and his brother's characteristics are that he's very sanctimonious he uh speaks in um 36 uh tweet twitter threads Eh. and he kind of talks like a hard-boiled like mercenary or detective which is very funny um yeah like so so something that happens is there are all these side we find out about the Hermes society all these people are of their their fellow students have involved the whole time they have this cute little hideaway where it seems like they're not actually really doing much to get material aid to like the struggles of people who are still in colonized countries they're just kind of like a think tank more or less mm-hmm. 
And I think it's supposed to be this like really upsetting rug pull when they are immediately all killed. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it just felt like bad pacing. Like it was like, oh, it's so dark that they like find this refuge finally and they're immediately all murdered terribly. And I don't know. It was like, we also just met them. So it doesn't have any weight to it. It's not we just met them, but like they haven't they haven't had any emotional heft in the rest of the story until that point. Yeah, we just know they're the good guys because Huang told us and they're in they they're holding the position that we would like to think that we would hold were we alive in the nineteenth century. So I guess we might as well go more into the pros because honestly we've kind of exhausted what there is of interest in the characters. Um, I know, uh, Kit, uh, uh, observes that she, she sees it as being improved from the Poppy War, which I more or less agree with in terms of being somewhat finer. I will say it is slower than the Poppy War, but, yes. uh, you know, that's, you can, uh, you can, you can weigh these things as, as you wish. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are some stabs at lyricism that genuinely succeed. I think mm. the opening scene is genuinely, like, pretty, like, mm-hmm. intense and interesting. And, and like, it, it, creates a, it creates a vibe. It has vibes. Mm. Um, and I would say that there are little moments here and there where there's a good observation. But, like, one of the really difficult aspects is she's ostensibly doing a pastiche of a kind of novel that has a lot of like keenly observant, mm. uh, mean, often, especially yeah. background observations about the characters. And she like kind of tries to do that, but it's, it doesn't land. Yeah. The only one it sort of works with is Letty, but with Letty, it's almost entirely like ideology critique, right? It's, it's about how she's not a good ally, more or less, um, and, you know, does the various crimes of, you know, uh, she did a no growth. Um, but <laughs> it's it, it's not very much. Yeah, th- you, you mentioned Thackeray. We already mentioned A Secret History and uh, Jonathan Norrell and Mr. Clark. No, that's not right. Jonathan Mr. Strange and Mr. Jonathan Norrell. <laughs> All right. Sorry, everybody. It's been a long time since I read it, okay? Like, I actually never read it. My family oh. listened to it in audiobook, uh-huh. compiled all the way through on a very long road trip. I think that counts as reading it. If you, it was if fun. You listen to all of it. Yeah. I, um, I, read, I, I listen to books. It's fine. I count it as reading. Um, um, sorry. Go ahead. So, so one of the key things about the prose is that um, – Kwong said during a talk she gave at Oxford for their like science fiction and fantasy society that she was intentionally using the quote unquote very proper English of Austin, Thackeray, and Dickens. And she, she is said not. That? Yeah, she, she said, said that? that. She said that aloud. There's a video recording of her saying it. That's amazing. This is simply not true. <laughs> um, like, it's not even a quality judgment. It's just not. No. It's just an objective fact. It's just not true. And like, I, I actually haven't, haven't read very much Dickens, but I obviously I really like Austin. I really like Thackeray. Um, Vanity Fair is a fantastic novel yeah. where it's only good when the, the mean, the bad people are winning, mm-hmm. but it's so good when the bad people are winning. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and 
yeah like like there's no that's not true all three of those authors also have very different styles right um uh, they're just all 19th century british authors that people know about right like mm-hmm. i think that you could if you'd read all three of them or even just two of them if you put a passage in front of someone who'd read all three or even just two they would immediately be able to identify whose passage was whose um and i think that this is like less of a source of frustration when it's description like when it's like like not dialogue but when it's dialogue it's incredibly grating both for political reasons and because it simply doesn't ring true right like letty is again we said the character with the most vibes because she is a type Mm -hmm. um but she's just like a like a, a collection of like tumblr call out posts as a person yeah um and she is not a racist and a white supremacist in the way that women of her class and race actually were in the 19th century. She is a racist and a white supremacist in the way of gently educated (laughs) white middle-class woman in 2020. Yeah. Um, And I actually think that's a really great loss. I mean, I guess we're not talking yet about the politics, but like, I mean, we're kind of putting it in there all the time anyway, so. Yeah, but um, so the politics are really of the book are very simplistic. And um, I think Kwong has gone on record saying that that's on purpose because um, these issues aren't ambiguous. And it's like, yes, it is unambiguously true that the British Empire was an enormous force of evil um, and like destroyed millions of lives. And continue, and its legacy continues to destroy millions, if not billions, of lives into the present day. But there's a sense to which, like, what is the point? She's she's not actually writing about that period. She is all of the acts of racism and the representations of white supremacy, except for the ones that happen off screen, um, are ones from the present day. And it's, and I, obviously that's like the point, right? But, but it's like, she doesn't manage to, to satirize or describe either era's form of racism and white supremacy and imperialism, because it's not clear which one she's actually talking about. I don't yeah. know if that makes sense. No, I think it more or less makes sense. It's so funny. I, I can't believe she said that about, the, the very proper English because well, I had this whole thing ready to say about how a lot of genre fiction these days, you know, the, the kind that have sort of genre speech, right? So fantasy traditionally had this kind of high flown diction and then historical fiction tries to sound notionally period accurate, but there's a lot of sort of weird conventionality to that too. And, you know, uh, people seem to have been moving away from that, with obvious exceptions, but you know your George R. R. Martins or whoever else—they don't, they're they're not writing, you know, have at the uh, the same way, and they can say they. I, well, we don't need to go into it now because I was going to do a whole thing about how you know it, it's a way to use 
the knowingness of the reader, that the reader knows it's fiction, because that's the usual excuse for why you wouldn't do period accurate dialogue. And it's true, but I have found that that sometimes leads writers to just write like everyone lives in the 21st century. And I figured that's what Kwong was doing, but apparently uh, that's not what she thought she was doing, which is interesting. Well, I think to me, I really appreciate when an author has captured like the rhythms, the sounds, the flavor of contemporary speech. And there's a lot of ways of doing that. Like for sure, reading primary sources is super fun and interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess the best example of this is obviously, um, the movie the witch or the vavitch mm. <laughs> uh which the dialogue was constructed in part from just like pulling dialogue from mm. court recordings of this like the court reporting of that period and it also does an amazing job of like you understand without it being overly expositated upon what these people believe the urgency and vivid vividness and reality of it for them um and that's reflected in speech and yet they are still like recognizably human because you know we have these wonderful actors but i think that and you know people still go to shakespeare plays um and i think that the greater but i feel like okay if you're going to use contemporary styles of speaking that's fine i don't think it's I think you're setting yourself up to have less fun as a writer. Yeah. Um, as long as those characters are using that language to express the very different ideological and epistemological frameworks they live inside. Right. Um, which, when that doesn't happen, why write historical fiction at all? Like, if right. you aren't going to actually do the world building required of historical fiction, then why write historical fiction? Right. Or at the very least try to have a consistent through line right it may not be 100 percent period accurate because speaking as a historian it's more or less impossible to guarantee and i don't think you necessarily even need to get the speech period accurate though i do think it helps to have at least some flavoring like you say borrowing for primary sources another there's also so much weird slang you can use right totally fallen out of use and like the kind of people who read science fiction and fantasy love that shit yeah yeah like Uh, they'll uh, start using it with their weird friends right so i was thinking of like hillary mantel and the wolf hall books uh are pretty good with that in that they're they're not exactly 16th century english but it does feel genuinely different, it, but in a way that's perfectly comprehensible. So fine, yeah. whatever. You should at least have a consistent through line. And when you see that through line, I, I guess you could say the babble almost has that, except for the when you get to the really like kind of depressing point that the through line is like almost a parody of like you've been saying, you know, 2020 or maybe a little bit earlier. 2018. (laughs) Yeah, sort of left liberal Twitter. But also not really left, I would say. I would say specifically liberal, even though um, Kwong, uh, I should say, is in solidarity with striking workers at her publisher, which rules because she's a big name author yeah thumbs up for them for that um and she does include sympathetic and even heroic 
working class characters mm-hmm. towards the very end who are like militant, um, like militant labor organizers. Um, and that's cool. Uh, and she does mention capitalism and how it's intertwined with imperialism, but like that's not as deeply, that is not very much felt in the text the way uh, imperialism and racism are, which is which is fine, but like right. it, it's not a book that the, the politics, the reason why the politics are important isn't because I need a raw author to get politics right or have politics I agree with. I read plenty of books by liberals that are liberal in their politics and are nevertheless revelatory and beautiful and interesting. Um, mm. Like, I don't know how many books I've read by conserv. Actually, I have read some books by conservatives and enjoyed them very recently, but that would just mm. be Gene Wolfe, who is mm. a, t- a con- was conservative, but also pretty idiosyncratic. Yeah, he was off uh, on his own thing. Yeah, he was kind of, he was, yeah, he was kind of doing his own thing. Um, and he wrote a really fantastic, eerie um, hmm. novel about colonization and identity um, that made me really shocked to find out that he was not on the left. Hmm. Um, uh, that's the fifth head of Cerberus, which I hmm. only read because Peter reviewed it and I fell ah. in love with it. Um, hmm. uh, yeah. So like, so Peter, you visited me last weekend. It's true, I did. You visited me last weekend, and we went to the Museum of the American Revolution, where, um, in addition to uh, seeing a light show projected on the side of Washington, General Washington's tent. Hell yeah. Which was incorrect. That was something I've I've never experienced anything like that before. Feelings on top of feelings. It was very much like, Oh, you think American civic religion is dead in the year of yeah. our Lord twenty twenty two? It no, is not. No, Here's sir. a relic. <laughs> yeah. Being got, presented relics, as motherfucker. Yeah. But the museum also had this really fantastic exhibit um called Black Founding Families, which was specifically about um uh a a, a man who started out at who was a Revolutionary War veteran. He was like a fourteen year old sailor. He got captured. Um, and he went on to be like a tremendously successful businessman, philanthropist. He also personally saved 12 people from drowning, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of bonkers. Um, Who does that? And he also um, lent, uh, he gave William Lloyd Garrison the startup funding for the Liberator. Yeah. Um and so the the art exhibit makes a really good implicit argument that these families, um, the Fortin, sorry, the Fortin family, mm-hmm. um, and James Fortin specifically, the the Revolutionary War veteran I've been describing, um, are have the same level of significance in American politics and the development of the U.S. and particularly like the struggle against slavery and and abolitionism as a movement as any of the guys who are on the doll- guys who are on our money. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that it does in a really fascinating way is it talks about political differences among mm. abolitionists, class tensions, um, both racial solid- solidarity across race, as well as condescension and, and I guess, I don't know if they would count as like microaggressions, huh. but, um, and uh, tension over uh, very light skinned black people taking a political leadership in the movement 
Uh, and in particular, a, f- uh, a fight between James Fortin's uh, son-in-law and, um, oh my God, why am I blanking? Anyway, so basically what uh, this Frederick is- Douglass. Frederick Douglass. He and Frederick Douglass yeah. had a feud. Had like a whole feud. Um, they made up in the end, though, folks. Yes, they they have evidence that they made up in the form of a book that is inscribed. Yeah. He, uh, Frederick Douglass, sent his book, yeah, um, at, as like a peace peace offering, um, and I guess to me it was a really fascinating exhibit, especially reading it, not reading it, being in that exhibit, experiencing that exhibit immediately after finishing Babel like the political complexity of the actual abolitionist movement, the ways in which racism and white supremacy played out inside of it, the ways in which people did manage to achieve solidarity. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just find that so much more interesting, useful. Uh, like there was a sense of being transported, mm. right? into the time period, not just because of the artifacts, but because of the way things were described. Mm. Um, and it was just a really interesting contrast to Babel because Babel's version of politics is either we lobby parliament and write pamphlets or we do violence by which RF Kong actually seems to mean property destruction. Like, yeah, there's take... only like one act of, like two acts of direct violence in the book. Yeah. Three, it's... well, three, like, yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, it was a very good museum exhibit. If you're in Philadelphia, I strongly suggest stopping by the uh, Museum of the American Revolution and having a look at the Fortin family exhibit because it really is pretty good. That said, it's really not a great sign when your novel is being beaten in terms of sophistication by a museum exhibit. Like, you're really serious... The supposedly like statement on anti-imperialism and you know telling the truth about racism and we haven't even gotten into the various aspects that Kwong goes into about translation and the way that academia is complicit in imperialism etc cetera, etc cetera. all of that but the museum exhibit does better um i would also uh, but at the same time, I, I can hear you saying, listener, okay, okay, there's inaccuracy, there's this, there's that, but it's it's an alternate world, right? There's magic. Well, there is, but at the same time, the world is almost exactly the same as 19th century England, except where Kwong introduces what seem a lot like accidental or sloppy anachronisms, uh, not just anachronisms of like technology or whatever, but you, uh, though you see the, or terminology, but you see those too, but the sort of anachronisms we've been talking about in terms of how people talk and think, how they do politics, uh, how they express bigotry. Uh, one thing that's worth noting is that, so the Luddites, enter into it as kind of the representatives of the working class who join with the translator rebels led by Robin towards the end of the book when they're having their big rebellion. Uh, which, you know, shouts out to to Kwong for not taking the kind of 2016 era line that 
anyone talking about class has to not be talking about race and vice versa. So that's cool. Manages to avoid that hurdle. Uh, one of the Luddites calls it the silver industrial revolution, right? So this is the reason why it will cripple the British Empire if they knock out the Death Star in the center of the translator tower, which somehow spreads its silver beams to all the silver bars that are in all of the spinning jennies and the Arkwright mules and the, the water frames and all that stuff that's powering the industrial revolution. Uh, I don't know how much you know about the industrial revolution listener, but, uh, those things, that's just physics. Like it's not just physics, but you don't even need to know like basic Newtonian physics. You don't need to know the theory behind any of it for it to work. I, I the, think also, can I give my favorite example? Sure, yeah. So at one point in the book, um, Daguerre, the actual inventor of the daguerreotype, which mm-hmm. I might be mispronouncing because I don't know any French, um, mm-hmm. shows up at Babel, the Translation Institute, and is like, I'm trying to invent this thing called photography. <laughs> and I have this camera but I can't quite get it to work. Maybe one of you guys can. And obviously one of like, one of the students get, who's like a heroic student, uh, like figures it out, but we are not told what Daguerre couldn't figure out or what that student did, which is sort of hand waved because, Oh, it's like secret because Mm. secrecy is important in this book. Um, And at the end, what you have is a normal camera. That takes daguerreotypes that are exactly the same as historical daguerreotypes. Yeah, it's wild. So at least, uh, uh, not to poo-poo your example, but at least the daguerreotype involved chemistry, which if you don't know what you're looking at, you can't necessarily observe in nature. Whereas most of the stuff from the Industrial Revolution, at least the first Industrial Revolution, right, the... You, you kind of have what's called the second industrial revolution later on, which deals more with things like chemistry, chemical engineering, uh, and so on, uh, radioactivity, electromagnetism. But early on, when you're dealing with essentially uh, mechanical devices for uh, transferring power, so often the textile industry or railroads, if you've ever seen a pot boil over, the basic idea of the steam engine isn't that isn't that counterintuitive if you understand like basic like mechan the the transition of like mechanical energy you don't even need to think of it that way people have been weaving these things forever you know spinning jennies or what have you uh, it's just the application of those principles uh, applying either steam power to them or making more efficient versions of them that run off again steam power or uh, river water power or something like that and having more finely machined versions of them and also putting a lot of them together and the reason why it's a revolution during the industrial revolution isn't because these devices are so crazily creative though they're they're very clever i'm not trying to talk down the inventors from that period the reason it was a revolution was because 
the West and Britain in particular had accumulated enough capital to make these labor-saving devices worth it, to make them a paying proposition, to allow them to reproduce their capital. The upshot of which is, unless basic physics doesn't work, like observable physics, the kind of stuff that if it didn't work, like basic, you wouldn't be able to move around. Uh, you know, your spinning Jenny is still going to work. Your Arkwright mule is still going to work. Your Steve, your 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 Stevenson's rocket is still going to work. Well, I'm not. Think... I'm, I'm not trying okay. to do cinemasins here, but like, <laughs> come on. But but it's actually a major flaw in the work because part of the the joy of speculative fiction is that it's speculative. You take something, right. you take a setting, you and in the kind this kind of book, like uh let's say I'm gonna talk about Babel. We already talked about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I would also compare the Temeraire series. Uh there's something is profoundly different and history plays out differently. Uh culture is different people people yeah. understand the significance of things in different ways so so my point of comparison would be um the temerary series by naomi novik which mm-hmm. is um a, a series of books where the premise is that the napoleonic wars are happening but everyone has dragons who are sentient and yeah. have different personalities and um basically uh are sort of treated as halfway between like the actual historical british navy like navy warships because they're weapons of mass destruction uh um and like an air force um and what she does with this premise is she takes everything to its logical conclusion and as a result of people having dragons the napoleonic wars play out completely differently as does attempts at call as do attempts at colonization because colonized people indigenous people of the americas for example while they're still of course vulnerable to epidemics they have a lot of dragons who are integrated into their society in a different way and they are able to fight off attempts at colonization. And we, obviously that makes the entire economy and history of the world really different. Mm. Um, and part of the joy of reading the book is just like being like, oh, that's weird, but it makes sense. Um, and yeah, I think that's like part of what makes the book so joyless is that we, we later on, like towards the end of the book, we find out like what, these silver bars this form of magic are actually doing and it's just like making minor efficiency and safety improvements Mm. like it makes carriages go faster and makes them less likely to like run over people Mm. uh but despite that like from what we see people's quality of life isn't any better which could be a statement about capitalism but also i I mean yeah, why have a speculative element if you're not actually going to use it, speculate? If there's one thing the early 19th century British were very worried about, it was their buggies running over poor children. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so so I guess if there's one thing you know, well, the, uh, to get across about the experience of reading this book was the joylessness of it. Uh, the characters, uh, don't 
have much spark. The prose is pretty uninspired. The ideas really aren't there except for this overwhelming sense of... uh, It's not even really an overwhelming... There isn't really any overwhelming... Overwhelming sense is the wrong way to put it. Constant authorial hectoring is how to put it. The author needs to tell you over and over again how bad imperialism is, how complicit Oxford and academia are in it, and how uh, unavoidable this complicity and universal this complicity is and how it defines every thing that everyone involved does. And once again, it's a situation where we are being told rather than shown. Mm -hmm. I feel like it wouldn't be that hard to talk about virtually, if you want to go this way, the vast, so many of the commodities they consume come from the what would eventually become the developing world, which were the parts of the world that the British were colonizing, if not directly, then indirectly uh, through control. There is a brief conversation about that. Actually, yeah. no, it's not about that. It's about opium. It's not actually about the sugar that's going into right. the stones that they are yeah. constantly eating. Talking about, yeah. Not enough sugar, in my opinion. Mm, yeah. Um. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. and that's just one example, right? I'm not trying to say that there's one way to do this thing. There's so many ways you could potentially make this concept compelling, and a really interesting read and pro- and a harrowing read, if that's what you want to do. The idea here that I'm trying to get across isn't that Babel should be sweet and light and airy. It could be as heavy as you want to make it. But it needs to compel more than it does. And it needs to do so through some way other than the author insisting that it already does. And... I think to build on that, I think that that's a big reason why I I think the book aesthetically does not succeed. Um, And it doesn't succeed as science fiction or it doesn't succeed as fantasy. I think it also does not succeed in the moral and political Mm. purpose that Kwong is ostensibly setting out to achieve Um, exactly because of as you described it, the constant authorial hectoring and the lack of subtlety. So let's, let me try to explain this. So, so um, the there's, I, I have, I, I believe that unsettled books um, actually often fail to achieve their goals much more so than subtle books. So one of, so like a point of comparison here is like, I love Star Trek DS9. Um, I think Gold Dukat is one of the most interesting villains in science fiction. And that's because he is repulsively evil and also believes himself genuinely to be like a protector and savior of Bajor over time, right? And that is expressed in allowing him to be like funny and charming, but also like you get reminders of both his like personal, like 
horrible creepiness and sexual violence and then also like what he did and continues to do as part of the empire um and i will also say the way the cardassian empire operates is um a bit more analogous to how empires operate today than the british empire of the 19th century um and i think the reason why these more subtle portrayals work is that they create uncertainty, ambiguity, and the uncertainty and ambiguity creates thought. It creates curiosity. It creates the need to turn things over. And I think it also like can spark self-reflection. So mm-hmm. when something is very unsubtle, like with this authorial hectoring, um, it doesn't actually cause reflection on the more insidious, subtle way the reader might be experiencing racism or perpetuating racism in their own life. Um, it's unsubtle books like this make it extremely easy to self exculpate because all you can say is, well, I'm not like Letty. I'm one of the good guys. And to me, um, it seems like Kwong wants to believe that she's confronting white readers with their complicity, making them confront the horrors of imperialism, but exactly because her villainous racist characters are so cartoonish Mm. And the forms of imperial violence she portrays are at least are at least superficially so differently constructed than ongoing imperial horrors that Americans are are complicit to in into varying degrees. Um, and Kwong is American, to be clear. Um, like I think that what that means is that white readers are not actually going to see themselves in Letty. They're not going to see themselves in the British Empire. They're not going to see themselves in Professor Lovell. They're going to see themselves as the good guys. So they both get like the sort of ego benefit of saying, wow, I read this book that said a lot of mean things about white people and I'm a white person and I still read it and I enjoyed it and I thought it was a great book. Um, so, but they haven't actually reflected on anything they do or they experience or that they know about. Um, so I think in reality, this is like one of the books that ostensibly is supposed to be make white people confront racism, but it is actually merely flattering them because they are doing the work simply by buying the book and mm. reading the message. But I don't think they're actually thinking about themselves critically, and I don't think they're actually thinking about the system critically, like the the, the system of imperialism and capitalism. Um, and that's like a real problem, right? Like, like we have, it's, it's sort of like empty calories. Mm. It's empty calories in terms of moral reflection, political reflection. And that to me is like worse than the escapism science fiction and fantasy are so often accused of being, because at least that's fun. Yeah. Right? <laughs> at least that brings people joy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's, among other things, if you were actually going to try to offer something to the readership in terms of, let's put it this way, if if this was all taken somewhat more seriously or, or methodically, then you wouldn't have this situation where ultimately becoming a resistor more or less came down to a combination of you're, you're given to it because you're a person of color or a colonized person and 
you just sort of you get exposed to the idea of resistance once and all of a sudden poof uh you're 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 in the secret sabotage group uh you you would need to actually think some about what the choices are and how people go about making them whereas kuang always only offers the one choice that's available to all of the characters and it, it isn't even so much accept or resist if that was a choice that would make a certain degree of sense instead the only possible motivations are uh your indignance at the situation which leads you to resist uh or comfort which among other things goes back to kit's point about the pleasures supposedly of kwong's oxford which is that we hear over and over again that Robin is conflicted. Yes, he knows that his mall ninja brother is doing the right thing by doing whatever it is he's doing, uh, and that in that he should he should join him or continue to work with him even when he doesn't want to. But the comforts of Oxford, the comforts of the the pleasures of Oxford. But what are these pleasures even? Scones and occasionally being called mean names? Uh Well there are just, also the oysters. There's they, also they, oysters. They deeply ahistorical oysters. Yeah, the oyster thing would be tricky when Oxford is that far inland. But who knows, maybe they had a silver bar which had the word cold in two different languages on the sides. Um Oh yeah, that actually would work. Yeah. But like then we anyway the culinary possibilities of right. this form of magic are actually like pretty tremendous right like you could yeah. do some really interesting things like like what if they like Flavors. Ev- yeah what if they like invent molecular gastronomy in the 1830s using magic like that would be kind of fun yeah they would have loved that being able to do like a million different courses with all yeah, these like, especially because of the way yeah like the way prestige dining worked yeah. then is like it's like we love meringue explicitly because it's a huge pain in the ass yes. to make because you don't have a stand mixer yet. Yes. Um, so, yeah. I mean, that, I, I think if they, if they had to take what, if the book took what is actually involved in politics seriously, any kind of politics, but especially militant politics, A, it would just be a good deal more complicated, and B, you would also have to get into things like differences between colonized people, differences within colonized people, right? Like the stuff that we were talking about with the James Fortin exhibit, that wasn't just uh, a thing among the abolitionists. If you go, all of these countries had long political traditions. And by that point, decades if not centuries of interaction with imperialism that produced very rich and nuanced and various ideas on how to cope with it and how to resist it or how to co-opt it or whatever else yes and what instead we get in Babel is a 21st century middle-class college-educated person Mm -hmm. who probably has not done any direct political organizing. We get their idea of what political struggle looks like. And there is no, no 
nothing incorporated from this incredibly like dazzlingly rich, huge international intellectual tradition. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not actually like, I don't know. I mean, it's hard because those people are dead. Um, right. So I can't really say that they're being disrespected, but I don't know. I guess just as someone who like loves reading history, cares about history, it, it feels like essentially disrespectful to, if not to the people who struggled and wrote and died and hid people in their homes and like donated money for newspapers and endured their like political centers being burned down and everything Mm. else. Like just to have that erased feels like a disrespect for human possibility in some way. Yeah. I I don't really know how to articulate it. I just find it really disappointing. Yeah. What, what's kind of the point of any of this at this point? Like that is, there is this feeling I get and it was stronger in this book than in possibly any book I've read in a while, but there is a, and it's almost always with recent books, but, and it's only in recent books that you get it in sci-fi fantasy. You could get it with older books in literary fiction, but the sense of kind of the suffocating, uh, uh, closeness and lack of possibility in the worlds of these books where not just are the possible are are the possibilities limited by the situations the characters are in which is that that's fine that's normal that's you know you the characters can't just go and do anything they have to have uh conflicts that that constrain them in some way but what I mean is the, the sense that one gets from reading the book, from its prose, from its world building, from its characters, from what authorial interventions there may be, um, that this very limited range of all those things, of all the characters and their actions and interactions with each other, that that's it as far as they're concerned. That everything else that could possibly happen, all that range of human possibility that you were talking about is just blotted out. It's not happening in the plot. It's not happening among the characters. And you can't imagine it sharing the same world with this plot, these characters, this prose this world view you really can't imagine a james fortin in this world you can't imagine uh, i have difficulty imagining the taiping rebellion in this world and i'm trying to, i'm not saying the taiping rebellion which for those of you are unfamiliar it was a civil war that occurred in china in the aftermath of the opium wars where uh a which was among other things a rebellion against the empire that ruled China and had ruled it at that point for several hundred years, which it's worth noting, and I don't think it comes up in Babel, the Qing dynasty was actually uh, originally a foreign dynasty. It was Manchu 
ethnic ethnic Manchus. That's what Manchuria is named after. Um, who over who they were nomads who took over China and uh, installed themselves as kind of a leadership caste, and especially in southern China, like in uh, Canton, where Robin was from, there was actually a lot of active resistance against the Qing dynasty, right? Qing dynasty loyalism wouldn't be the first place you would go to if you were a big-time anti-imperialist, but or maybe it would. I don't know. It would, but there would at least be kind of that context. There would be that debate, or you would at least have the idea that there could possibly be some larger world behind behind these anti-imperialists than no, but the cardboard cutouts to... you get. And we're also supposed to believe that there's this like anonymous distributed network of like Hermes society people and they are like mm. the resistance to mm. empire and I remember one of the things in the book that like really ground my gears was um, there's this like brief paragraph that kind of just dismisses the entire British abolitionist movement as economically mm. motivated oh god um, ignoring the fact that that's just not true. The yeah. abolitionist movement in Britain and in the United States was like a profoundly moral movement that tried very hard and sometimes succeeded and sometimes failed to act in racial solidarity among black and white abolitionists. Mm. Um, and a lot of them were deeply, deeply religious. Like we said, uh, like James Fortin funded the liberator, right? Like it was his capital that funded a white man's newspaper that published writing by black and white abolitionists. Um, people who wrote like uh, there was an example on the exhibit of um, the Fam- Fortin family had a commemorative plate um, that was dedicated to the memory of um, a white abolitionist who had founded yes. an abolitionist newspaper and had been murdered yes, Elijah by other white joy. people. Yeah. And I'm not saying like, oh, not all white people. Cause I feel like the authors kind of put me in a trap where it sounds right. like that's what I'm saying. What yeah. I'm saying is that, I don't know, like a better world is possible, right? Like, this this like you said the horizon of the world the horizon of the world of this novel is so much narrower than the horizon of the real world with all of its real manifold horrors right um and and that's like a failure it just the whole book is a profound failure of imagination in every possible sense yeah i would take i would take make literally every white character evil like i would take that like take away the nice irish girl and the Luddites and whatever, make all the fucking white characters evil, but at least have some kind of fucking debate or, like, difference between the various colonized peoples. Like, that's crazy that you're just acting like they're almost exactly the fucking same. I know, uh, and exce- like, as except, if- like, the re-skinning. Like, okay, well, one of them makes kind of Islamic references, and the other makes, like, Chinese cultural references. One and- throws a potato. Yeah, one th- one throws a potato. Yes, our traditional weapon. Uh, <laughs> it's like, come on, man! Like, like, uh, go, go, full on, you know, Amiri Baraka against the whites. That won't bother me. But like, 
Do something. Come at on. At least that's spicy. Because like yeah. this book is presented as if it's spicy and it's actually yes. not spicy at all. It's yes. like if you're gonna like excoriate white people, like go for it. Yeah. Like we deserve it. Yeah, fuck, but fuck this me is up, not fam. this is not successful at that. Like I I yeah, like like I just like I said, it's a failure of imagination. And I think it's exactly because she sees herself as like teaching people important things about racism and imperialism. And she's not and like she has a a, a very uh impressive intellectual and academic pedigree. Yeah. Um I know that the discussions that are happening in the many classes she's taken, ones some of which she kind of refers to and like the um acknowledgments are are vastly more complex and interesting than what she has written in this novel. And it does feel like a story for children. Mm-hmm. Like, I really doubt that this book accurately represents the kinds of things she thinks and believes and wonders about uh, politically, intellectually, academically, linguistically. Um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like the writer trying to share something that's truthful with us. It feels like a writer trying to, get us to think the right things and i think that perhaps for quag there isn't a distinction between those two things and i think that there is yeah i i figure it could possibly be that um you know try, trying to be a little more generous i guess though i don't know if this is really more generous but it could be that she faced all this stuff and faced all the the back and the forth and the history and the horror and the terror and the you know, ongoing racism that she no doubt experiences and sexism and everything else. And I think sometimes people just look at that and they throw up their hands and they figure this is the best they can do is some sort of like simplistic morality play. And and not for nothing, but if you do that and Let's be real here. If you do it from the subject position of someone who can say, uh, I'm, I'm someone who experiences these things. Therefore, uh, I am immune to certain sorts of criticism. It also serves to insulate your book from criticism. Right. I think it, I think it's probably pretty, especially in the age of social media, it would be pretty easy if anybody bothers to listen to all of this, which I don't pretend that my listenership is vast, but it would be pretty easy to write off the criticism as racist, sexist, and so on. Um, And moreover, in a somewhat more sophisticated vein, you can always argue that things like nuance or originality or like challenge to the reader or anything like that uh, isn't necessary because you're upsetting an apple cart, right? You're 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 trying to get a message across and you're trying to break through the old boys club and and do your thing. Uh and you know, we don't have time for your literary pieties and your your flourishes that, you know, <laughs> that that white bros you know those those bro writers like I don't know whoever I mean I'm actually not that big of a fan of David Foster Wallace but he's considered kind of a classic uh and you know that's just so convenient and it, I've been reading a fair number of you know what were once called transgressive writers 
from the late 20th century and the early 21st for a project. And it, it honestly kind of reminds me of the, some of them who managed to survive and be famous into our period, most notably Brett Easton Ellis, who just insists that any critic who says anything mean about him just doesn't get it. Right. They don't they they don't get what he's going for. You know that he and Donna Tart were in college at the same oh, yeah. time. <laughs> and Jonathan Jonathan Lethem. It's which okay, so like actually something that I would mention with that for that is that I also think that so like I I would argue, and maybe it's just because I'm a snob, maybe it's because like I enjoy books like this with some level of ambiguity. I think one of the great powers of fiction is to help you feel and believe two contradictory Mm. things simultaneously because the truth of the emotional and aesthetic experience you're having with the book forces you to, it it makes it impossible to choose between them. Like I think that, and then I think that's where that's the friction. The friction that produces is the reason why novels and narrative can alter people's relationships with the world and with themselves and with other people. And I don't know. I, I guess just, I think that's important. I think it's valuable. Like I've been kind of on a kick of reading um, a lot of like 1970s and 1980s sci-fi, which often gets caricatured as like, I don't know, like self-indulgent adventure mm-hmm. stories for, for white men, which I mean, obviously, I'm not reading that. That's not stuff that survived to be recommended necessarily. And I'm sure that that is true. But like, I would say a majority of those writers were grappling with questions about colonization and politics. And as as Kwong puts it, gender, as Kwong puts it, the necessity of violence. Right. Um, And they were doing it in a way that, like, like, confused people i don't know people should be confused when they read books i and like i think that's one of the reasons why i think this book could have been fine if it was dramatically shorter focused more on character interactions and was pitched as ya because it reads like ya it has essentially ya concerns um and i think that right now there's a sort of belief among very online YA writers. I'm talking about this as if I'm not like obsessively following the drama, which I am. (laughs) Um, There seems to be like an overarching belief that what is good in young adult fiction is what is sort of morally, intellectually, politically wholesome and Mm. representative. And I don't know about you, Peter, but I kind of just only read, I read YA through maybe the age of 11 and then I just started reading adult books because I was actually, as a teenager, I was very interested in the idea of becoming an adult. And I was interested right. in what being an adult meant. And I was actually not terribly interested by people, the idea of reading about what was supposed to be representing my own experience. I, I, right. I have a theory that a lot of YA is, much like Seventeen magazine, a lot of YA is probably read more by um late elementary schoolers and and early middle schoolers than by actual teens yeah or just by flat out adults which i don't think is true with 17 but um uh yeah no it, it, it's weird so 
among other things, I'm a little bit older than you are. Mm-hmm. So I was, in, when I was in high school, like the Harry Potter books were coming out. I think the last one came out around the time I graduated college, maybe. But they were they were coming out and everybody read those, myself included. And, but like YA as like this cultural phenomenon was not what it would eventually become. And we didn't put a lot of distinction. Uh, I, let's put it this way. I read a lot of books that were intended for grownups. I also read a fair number of books that were like, maybe intended for grownups, but become kind of like young adult slash early adulthood classics. So like Herman Hesse, uh, you know, I, I, I read Ender's game and was a big fan of it around that time. Oh yeah. I read that in Um, eighth grade and it really blew my mind. And then my mind was blown a second time when I found out what, He's like Orson Scott Card's deal is. Yeah, no, that was I was there for that whole darn shooting match, and it was really <laughs> uh, disappointing. Um, yeah, so so the whole YA thing kind of started to develop as like a th- marketing category, as like a marketing category, and this kind of phenom and a thing that adults were doing all kind of at the same time. I kind of passed by it like a ship in the night. Like I, I haven't intentionally read a work of YA, probably, probably since the last Harry Potter book. I think uh, I was tricked into it at least once, and yeah. I was very angry when I realized. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to tell people they shouldn't read YA. I mean, do whatever, man. But uh, you know, I, 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 I don't see much there of interest to me. Uh, so so to, so to cap off, our last section here is on one of the reasons I want to have Kit in particular on to discuss this is Kit's sort of meritocracy theory of contemporary sci-fi fantasy. Which you named. Yeah, I named, do you have a better name? I mean, I've actually Lady? been thinking of it as the, I think the meritocracy theory captured is a different aspect or an important aspect of what? I'm talking about and I think what I've kind of started calling it in my head is the new chosen one okay yeah that is a better name um uh so Peter you and I were both um pretty like we found the podcast the two podcast episodes about Squeakor um very even though we didn't fully agree with it I have like some major disagreements with it um though I I respect the donks that they made um, mm, yes, quality. Dunks. I don't. I don't think any of them were unjustified. Um, uh, but it was very like generative for us. Like I think mm, it was something yes. that you and I talked about a lot. I talked about a lot with um, another group of friends of mine who read a shit ton of contemporary science fiction and fantasy. Um, and I started just kind of trying to figure out what about it rang true and what about it didn't ring true. And the thread I kind of pulled out by that process of sorting, which is a terrible mixed metaphor, um, uh, is this idea that um, a majority of really splashy releases and of books that have gotten major awards and been nominated for major awards, and particularly books released by Tor, um, though not all of them, uh, basically follow the same 
type of narrative. Um, and I'll go into why I think that this narrative has emerged in the specific time and place and like market conditions that it has. Um, so the overarching plot of the new chosen one narrative is that the empire itself, like the big bad discovers, chooses, trains, flatters a marginalized person, um, often multiply marginalized, uh, who has a great inherent skill that originates in or is inextricable from their marginalized background or otherwise results in their marginalization outside of the context of this use the empire has for them. Something that's really important about this and that distinguishes it from kind of old school chosen one narratives is they have not been chosen by their own culture, their home culture, their indigenous culture, their community, um, their gods, their supernatural forces. They are chosen specifically by the empire mm. um, or created by the empire in the case of some that are about like AIs. Mm. Um, and another aspect of this chosen one story is that the hero is like so OP, so like overpowered relative to almost everyone else in the world that they in fact can nearly single-handedly overturn the imperial social order through challenging but achievable acts of destruction, mm-hmm. specifically destruction. Um, and so there's a lot of similarities with old narratives. Um, so, so like usually, like so. Like, for example, the hero, there's always that, like an element of like what gets called like Nakama and like fandom, like that, like that's like, or it often gets called chosen family now, which like mm. kind of makes my eye twitch, but <laughs> the the horse has left the barn um, on that one after Taylor Swift used it. Mm. Um, oh, I didn't know she used it. Oh my God, she did. And then people were defending it. I, of course, this is why. This is why I have decided to become a snobby rockist. Oh yeah. Instead of and just so I can like argue with poptimists. Oh yeah. Join um, us. <laughs> um so so like there's this element of like like making friends who you may or not be able to trust. So often one of them betrays you, which is like a, a fun plot element that goes back to at least the New Testament. Um <laughs> uh and they always struggle to decide what the ends justify the means. And they usually reason about this in a very liberal way, um, which I'm using both as a term of abuse and to describe actual ideology. Mm. Um, and they sometimes struggle over the idea of whether they personally have the right to act, like what it means that they are so OP and like, like, is that good? Like, are they, should they like become a God? Mm. Um which again, that's like that's like just a classic chosen one narrative element. Um, uh, and the central, but the central challenge, I think, pretty in most of these books is that the hero struggles, is conflicted over whether to use her power for reform or revolution, and she basically always chooses the latter, um, but not always. Yeah. Um, and this is portrayed in a very it's portrayed in a way that I feel like does not actually uh, reflect how things work in actual liberation movements or or wars of liberation. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and then like the series, it's almost always a series. It usually ends on a note of like ambiguous hope where the hero has her friends and she sort of re- like retreats to peaceful retirement a la Cincinnatus and or George Washington. Mm. Um, they save the tent and they yeah! put a white show on it. Oh my God, the tent. <laughs> the tent. It's amazing. It's an important um, fucking tent. Uh there's like a whole video about why the tent's important and all the things that <laughs> happened in the tent. And like, there are no objects inside the tent, which is kind of disappointing. It was. Um, they should let us go in a replica of the tent. Yeah. Um, anyway. Sorry, <laughs> just sorry. Some folks. notes for the uh, American some tent content. Yeah. yeah, just some notes for the American Revolutionary Museum of Philadelphia. Also, if you go there, you should talk to the curators as much as possible. Yeah, they were really they, great. They fucking live for it. They were great. Um, Okay, so like, so that's basically the no, new chosen one narrative, and I think that what this this plot is like a fantasy, like a chosen one plot in general. It's a fantasy uh, in the sense of not like fantasy novel, but like personal fantasy. It's a fantasy of an irresistible kind of agency within and over empire that marginalized people who have been absorbed into systems of power do not actually have. And that no individual person ever actually has. Like, importantly, um, there have been plenty of U.S. president is one of the most powerful people in the world who like who inevitably whoever is president does inevitably does like an enormous amount of evil. And that's because, like, even the president is like heavily constrained by the sort of momentum of empire Mm. and white supremacy and uh, the other branches of government. In the other branches of government, right? Like, like yeah. there's a, there is never a case where, and and then these revolutionaries, and then revolution, and then people who become dictators. That's it's the same thing. Like we 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 kind of do this great man his theory of history thing, um, that really ignores that like the Russian Revolution didn't like solely happen because of Lenin, right? right. Um, the, the like Mao was not the only guy who had agency in China during that time period. Um, uh, and so like, basically this goes back to what Peter was saying about the meritocracy theory of contemporary science fiction and fantasy, which I think is also a good name. Um, Yours is, is better. That... I, 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 I grant <laughs> Um, so I think that this is, these novels, other than just being a publishing trend, other than the fact that like these kinds of narratives sell well because people enjoy reading them. Um, also I would say, I'm not saying all or most books with this narrative are even like bad. I think Mm. some of them are actually extraordinarily good and interesting. Mm. Um, uh, they're all kind of, I seem to be grappling with the same basic set of concerns. Um, and it's important that their authors are all, almost all, sometimes it's unclear, uh, people from like at least one axis of marginalization, mm-hmm. like uh, like in terms of like sexuality, gender identity, uh, uh, like uh, being cis or trans, sexuality, race, nationality, uh, etc. Never, it's never class, um, yeah. because, but, um, and I think that basically just like reflects the anxieties of a person who is like relatively politically conscious and has thrived and achieved in 
like to a reasonably high or even in the case of Kwong, extraordinary extent within systems that they know are based on like exploitation and immiseration of vast numbers of other people. Um, and that they also know that like to some extent, like the universities that are very important to all of them um, are also like factories for the ideology that like justifies those horrors mm-hmm. um and that's like really difficult that's like a difficult thing to grapple with right i think that like people end up resolving that tension in different ways and some of them like right through it but i think that this plot this fantasy of the of like kind of overpowering agency over empire um that again no individual person ever actually has um like it, it's it's not so much like a resolution an attempt to resolve the question either way mm. as an attempt to like off gas tension so like by creating right. a circumstance that could never actually occur even metaphorically mm-hmm. no one person like like the idea of one person knowingly having the power to reliably overturn an empire um mm. these stories actually sidestep the questions of complicity and moral compromise middle class professional class college educated mm-hmm. people face in their real lives mm. like it's sort of a fantasy of the sense of, like the power like the sense of responsibility i'm sorry like like Obviously, like one of the great, like the themes of speculative fiction is like with great power comes great responsibility. Mm. Um, and like the fact that we will feel responsible and really don't have that much power is like, is very painful for, for yeah. people who notice that, right? Um, and so I think that these stories are kind of a way to off gas that, that internal pressure people feel about their complicity, the ways they benefit from empire. Uh, without actually forcing them to confront it and considering whether they specifically might have a responsibility to live and act differently. Um, It's basically saying, well, if I had the power of the protagonist in this book, then I would do all the things that she did. Um, But I don't have that power. So the best thing I can do is like develop and refine my personal politics and the way I interact with other people in my immediate community. Right. So I could live up to the example of the chosen one yeah uh, and- consciously or unconscious i mean you do get people who say that about harry potter but uh probably fewer uh these somewhat more sophisticated books yes and and like i think also like it's it's really significant here that what kinds of people actually like habitually read like critically acclaimed contemporary mm-hmm. science fiction is like very disproportionately people who have like high-end professional yeah. jobs in like technology science academia um the professions yeah. or like thrust um, or like they're over-educated but underachieving ding, oh ding, are ding. you thinking of anyone in particular peter uh hey <laughs> no i was talking about myself too oh um no it's fine it's good i'm i'm achieving this podcast has been so long but um <laughs> no it's good it's a good one but so so basically what you're saying would you say that it's accurate that these books along with whatever else they do good bad or indifferent that they provide both kind of a power fantasy and an alibi kind of simultaneously that's a really interesting way of putting it yeah i think they do because 
by yeah by by saying that well if i had the power i would do this that gives people kind of a sense of being being exculpated like i said that babel in particular seems like it's kind of unintentionally self-exculpatory mm-hmm. for people who participate in empire who are reading it yeah. um which is like actually all of us everybody, for the most yeah. part everybody um and i think i th- I do think that like is part of what's happening right because like okay so for example i've been reading a lot of um china mievo lately mm-hmm. um which is very cool because he's an actual leftist and he has a very he he, he does a really good job and of really entertainingly integrating the way actual like leftist organizing works into the plot um, and like the degrees of involvement people can have and how people are radicalized, how people move from attending reading groups to like assassination. Mm-hmm. Um, and like those books give me a sense of hope, but also in a sense of being galvanized to actually do things because the people in them specifically are not very special. Mm-hmm except due to circumstance or passion or like like the way they think about things they none of them have powers on which the axis of the plot turns mm-hmm. like in particular like so the scar like it's a kind of annoying how how little agency the protagonist has even though that's like part of the point mm. um she's also a translator interestingly mm. Um, and that is like defines her role within the society into which she is adopted slash kidnapped. Um, so reading things like that, like for me, causes self-reflection because I'm like, well, I could do this, right? Like this like reflects things that happen in real life. And this opens so many imaginative possibilities. And there is not a significant difference between me and these people, but these people are like rising to the occasion mm. and sometimes failing and sometimes taking the wrong action in their attempt to rise to the occasion. And mm-hmm. yeah, and often things don't fully work out and terribly sad things happen. Or sometimes literally having like literally doing nothing wrong except for hesitating uh, to take part in your mall ninja brothers group, like after already agreeing to do it. As the case may be. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, uh, one, one thing I, I, I do like to do on this podcast is name names. <laughs> so uh, we would put Babel and I think the Poppy War in this bucket. Right. The, oh, the Poppy yeah, War absolutely. has a certain degree of like almost shown in anime type quality to it. Yes. Uh, where. Yeah. Which the chosen one narratives. I, I don't think it's entirely a coincidence that these have risen to prominence uh, at a time when American access to anime, uh, you know, was pretty high and influential in nerd circles. And it's usually nerds who, who write sci-fi and fantasy saying that in a value neutral sense, I would put Rebecca Rowan horses uh, black sun in this category, vaguely Mesoamerican themed world. Um, what else would you? It's your category, so why don't you? Uh... Okay, so I w- I just want to say for for 
to clarify, I like specifically try to avoid reading books that are bad. So the books I'm going to mention are all books that I think are good mm-hmm. because I would not have finished them if I thought mm-hmm. they were bad. So um, the Broken Earth series absolutely qualifies, mm-hmm. though it has some really interesting nuances around family and parenting. And like, I would say that, it, that it's it's not a book that lacks complexity. Um mm-hmm. The uh, the traitor Barra Cormorant has this yeah. essential plot, though the character's powers are basically like intellectual and perceptive. Yeah. Um, she's kind of like a Sherlock Holmes character, I think. Yeah. But like, if Sherlock Holmes were also uh, Garrick from DS9. Um, yeah. uh, and again, there's a lot of complexity there. Um, the Golden Enclave series, which include, which is the first not book of which is the dead, a deadly education by Naomi, mm-hmm. Naomi, it's by Naomi Novik, who I love, mm-hmm. uh, again, does some really interesting things in thinking about using this chosen one narrative, um, to think about, and like the idea of creative destruction, uh, in, in tandem with talking about solidarity and collective survival, mm-hmm. um, Again, very cool. I would say a book that is kind of a parable, uh, a series that in some ways is a parable about like individualism versus like solidarity. Um, what else? Uh, would you say that? Uh, what, what do you think? Um, Gideon the Ninth would count. I would say I want to say yes, but what is going on in those books is so unclear. Like. Yeah. 80% of the time that I have to read, like, keep the fan wiki open. And right. let me be clear, I like that. Like, I like that Gideon the Ninth is so, that the, the uh, Lock Tomb is so impenetrable. I think it's very stylish. I know you did not like. Not especially. It's, it's, uh, home. Oh, and also Gideon the Ninth, I, w- I would like to say specifically, the Broken Earth is also very anime. Very, yeah. very, very anime. Um, and, uh, Gideon the Ninth is specifically written by a homestuck fan fiction writer right uh and i have never read homestuck uh but i have been assured by people who have that the it is extremely homestuck to the point of characters sort of having homestuck analogs that are pretty obvious yeah i um if you want to know what i i haven't read all the books you reference uh i did read uh the first broken earth book didn't especially care for it didn't especially care for Gideon the Ninth either, uh, though honestly compared to Babel, but um, they were they were comparatively good in my opinion. Uh, though, uh, so here's here's the thing I'm just gonna throw out. I, I did like Baru Cormoran. Oh, I especially I love liked, that. Yeah, I especially liked the first one. The second one was a little shakier, just in terms of uh too many kind of just way too much stuff in it i plan on reading the the third one sometime this year um so here's what i would say and this kind of cuts across all oh, of them. the ancillary justice series also qualifies. yeah so the okay. protagonist is an ai which is interesting but she's literally yeah. a weapon of empire who gets who turns against the empire due to being personally harmed by the murder of her yeah cat. yeah but i like that one I, reasonably okay i really enjoyed it but Let's, Let's, yeah. pu- let's put it this way. So I think with the partial exception of Baru Cormorant, one of the things that gets me about more or less all of these, and I don't feel great about it given that 
uh, these are exclusively written by women and mm-hmm. uh, other than Seth Dickinson and women of color, the ones we largely women of color, the ones we mentioned, though, uh, I will say that similar, you can see similar problems and stuff by white male writers that we just haven't really brought up much because if nothing else, they're just kind of lazier and less inspired. So here I'm thinking uh, Patrick Rothfuss, Brandon Sanderson, uh, various others. But it, Oh yeah, I would much rather read any of the books we've mentioned than those books. Oh, and I thought of some other couple examples. Uh-huh. Again, books I like, um, A Memory Called Empire and its sequel by RKD. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't read that one. I plan on it at some it's, point. It's fun. And then there's the one that I really don't remember very well, but like it involves pretty like horrifying like planetary weapons and like some sort of technology based on time that is completely impenetrable and it also has like that sort of body snatching like body sharing element is this uh yeah is this the uh, machineries of empire i think so um like raven stratagem and um let me make sure I, I read it. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the Machineries of Empire where the first book is Nine Fox Gambit. Yes, yes. Um, uh, that book has a lot of fresh pleasures. It's extremely horny in a weird and, like, interesting way. Huh. Um, I didn't I pick know. that up when I read uh, it. It's, but... it's very horny in a very, like, trans and queer way. Not to, yeah. like... Not to say, oh, Peter, you'll never understand. No, it's like... uh, I, I'd accept it if you did. I, I'm aware of my limitations. Anyway, so here's here's my big here, here's the big thing that gets me, and I realize that this might just be a thing that I care about that not everybody cares about, but I do think it maps onto larger issues that we see more broadly in genre fiction and. In sci-fi fantasy and arguably in fiction more broadly and that is there is a sort of there's a formal schematism to the world building what i mean is most of these settings uh have they have their empire the empire has its factions however they're conceived so in the locked tomb, you have these different houses, which all also have a planet in the solar system, and each one has its different way of doing necromancy. Which is and, very anime. This which is, is it's like, yeah, it's extremely I, anime. I believe you. I'm not. I, I probably shouldn't have made as many anime references as I have in this podcast episode because I really don't know anime well. But I I mean I, I can drop specific references I've if known, you want me to no, humiliate I, I, myself. <laughs> I've known I've been around anime anime fans more or less my whole life, so I've picked up a certain amount of how it works by osmosis. But in any event, so in uh in the many of these you have sort of different tribes or clans that people can belong to. Seemingly everybody belongs to at least one in a way that seems to borrow a lot from the houses in Harry Potter. The uh they they the different parts of the schema all go along with personality traits. There's not much in the way of 
overlap or if there is, it's unintentional. And everything's kind of very neat in Can the I world. Can I interject slightly about sure. whether this is a Harry Potter thing? This is also just something that fantasy has done for a really long time since Lord of the Rings and then of course Dungeons and Dragons which became influential on its own like like the idea of like dwarves and elves and halflings and I, in this case it's just all what, humans what, of different kinds. What, what I want to put to you Kit <laughs> is that D&D yes very important to this and obviously Tolkien huge influence on D&D. I don't think if you read Lord of the Rings the while race is obviously incredibly important, the different there's a lack of schematism, right? The there's a for lack of a better term, a kind of unevenness and a lumpiness, if you want to call it that, to the sort of organ. It, it, you couldn't easily put the races of Middle Earth into like the kind of organizational tree that you could the houses in Harry Potter, the uh the houses arguably in at least the first Lock Tomb book, the different clans or whatever they're meant to be called in Black Sun, uh so on and so forth, right? Because okay, yeah, you have elves and dwarves and humans, but in many respects like their their national differences count for more. Yeah, um, like the elves of Mirkwood and the elves right. of Rivendell they're, are different. They don't have even populations. Yes. Uh, they're not considered equivalent in power. The character varies wildly across the races. Um, there are certain character types that are more commonly associated with some of the races than others. Some of them are kind of not there anymore, and there's only a couple. Like, there's... And what that does, more than kind of varying things up, though I do think that's important, is it helps give a sense of an organically grown world. Yes. Rather than a world where much of the construction uh, seems more like it was constructed for the convenience of... uh, some combination of gamers and <laughs> merchandise creators. Uh, and I think beyond just the world building, that influences things like characterization, mm. influences plot structures. Uh, I will say to its credit, um, the world of Baru Cormorant is kind of lumpier and more organic in that way, right? Not Oh yeah, in, in in a way that's much more, among other things, much more accurate to how empire works. Yes, because empires, in many respects, work by negotiating difference, not necessarily respecting it, not necessarily systematically disrespecting it, but by finding different ways and means of either using or resisting or suppressing or, in some cases. Um, accentuating population differences that are there anyway in order to keep the empire going. So sort of like leveraging differences to like gain a competitive advantage over everyone. Yeah, yeah, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so divide and conquer is the classic way of it, 
but there's a, a that could mean a lot of different things and b in some cases you you did get more assimilationist empires um and so but there's always these these kind of complexities in the ways that they develop over time i will say for for whatever it's worth um you know babel doesn't have like houses or like factions as such in many ways it's just too black and white for that right either yeah. you're babel or your hermes um i will say the extras you know just a random babel student sort of did remind me a little bit of like all those extras jk rowling had running around hogwarts okay but i it's very hard for me to articulate something positive about jk rowling because she's she's awful she's, she's awful, awful. this is an anti-jk um, rowling podcast you might yeah, be surprised to find like, out anti-jk rowling on every possible level but specifically uh the uh the uh, support for the genocide of trans people yes um at least the the extras in the harry potter books are like defined enough to be memorable yeah right is like, that weird like, like infamous like like infamous and at least like if nothing else her like stupid names right made people memorable like i remember the harry potter fandom like infamously became obsessed with um this character like blaze yeah blaze zabini Zabini, just because the name was so cool and everyone was like fighting over whether blaze zabini was a boy or a girl and uh. then we finally found something out about who Blaze was when he, he started going to the slug club. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the extras here, like, like they are not memorable. And no. like, yeah. I was thinking also, um, I think that this isn't just a Harry Potter thing. I think it's also the influence of video games, yes. right? Like of, because video games mechanically kind of, have to be designed around these sort of like factions that are often color coded in some yep. ways that are sometimes more subtly than others. I think yeah. that uh, Horizon Zero Dawn does a lot of really interesting stuff with a varying dress and color palette by culture. So it's like works for you as a player, and it's also like it's interesting and and like it 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 reflects the material conditions of each culture. Mm-hmm. Um and. Like, so I'm thinking specifically of in Broken Earth, um, the culture that the protagonist is part of and has been brutalized by um, practices a certain form of eugenics Mm. that produces, like, very specific types of people who are supposed to be, like, optimized to survive, um, like, the aftermath of earthquakes and uh, catastrophic like catastrophic uh, volcano eruptions. Um, And I just found that interesting because like eugenics doesn't really work that well in practice. Mm, No. Um, Especially not to the extent of like creating people who have consistently the same hair color or or, Mm. like hair texture, for example. Um, And it's just, I mean, I know it's a fantasy world, but like, it was just weird to me that that was included. I think it was an example of like how like inhuman and like brutal this place is, but it's also like genetics doesn't genetics doesn't really work. No. Um, so I don't know. Anyway, sorry, random side note, but it was no, an it's... example of like how this like typing of people 
is so prevalent. And I would also say that um, the contemporary queer obsession with astrology uh, is yeah. very much of a piece with this. Yeah, and George R. R. Martin obviously has the many houses of, of uh, I was going to call it Middle Earth, of uh, Westeros. And I, I, I would put that kind of in a similar category, but there is a symmetry among the houses and that some of them are big deals and some of them aren't. And you don't know all of them. And there's this kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're of differing ages and prestige and so on. It's, it's more, it's neater and more symmetrical than actual feudalism, but gets some of the flavor across. Yeah. Uh, like everything representatives, representations of, feudalism i think always necessarily have to be more schematic than they are in real life because right. it's so it, it's like yeah, it I mean, really so i'm talking out of my i'm talking out of my ass here but i feel like one of the distinguishing features of feudalism is that there's no ideology per se that's dividing people from another it's all like personal relationships and personal gain which yeah. makes it incredibly chaotic because yes. people are not working in the interests of any larger goal besides yeah. the furthering of their personal prestige and that of their their house right yeah so um yeah I, I i guess we can you know we've been recording for a while i think we've more or less said what we want to say um i do think that uh arguably the airlessness and joylessness and slog quality of Babel uh, probably has a number of different sources, but I do plan on keeping my eye on the schematization of our imaginations and the and, and a kind of uncritical acceptance of that schema of uh, of the way that that's just how we do things. That's how we create things. Because I'm not saying that everything that does that is automatically bad, but it should be a considered decision. So I'm going to uh, kind of put a pin in that and consider that as something that is possibly contributing to what what should be an impossible situation, which is speculative fiction should never feel that way, right? Literary fiction, whatever. It's always been, at least in part, a game for elites to show off their their knowledge and their worldliness and select mates uh, on the basis of of who can hang with whatever literature, and it's fine. But speculative fiction is supposed to be about imagination and the opening up of worlds. And even the dullest, dumbest sci-fi fantasy from years past, and there's some real stinkeroos from from some big names. They all at least have this sense of opening out. But I feel like in, I, I don't know exactly when you would date it to, but there is a sense of that frontier not closing altogether, but of it uh, of increasing number of works that make a big splash that don't feel like they open up to anything really at all. And Babel is probably the worst I've found in that category. 
I think because of the joylessness, the lack of imagination, the lack of like aesthetic pleasure or imaginative play specifically. Because I think, like I said, all the books I cited are very memorable, have very distinctive styles, are are fun. Even Mm. Baru Cormorant, even Broken Earth, which are both like quite grim. There's, there's fun stuff. There's like a whole underground crystal city in the Broken Earth that's like pretty Mm. sick. Um, like I, I think we also maybe like, like, I don't know anything about the science fiction and fantasy published in industry in particular, um, except that sci-fi authors don't make money. Mm. <laughs> um, even ones who have bestsellers. Um, but like, I think I'd also don't want to discount that, like, we're sort of talking about this as if necessarily, these works are coming from like the heart and like the deepest felt artistic concerns of the people writing them. Mm. And I feel like that's probably not, I mean, I I don't know the extent to which that, that is true because I think there also is like publishers chase trends, right? Mm. Like there's been this glut of um, quote unquote feminist retellings of like classic Greek like classical myths um started by the success of kirke by madeline miller which um is a novel that i profoundly hate um and in a way that's probably unnecessary um publishers like that's like one thing i know is the publishers love trends they love books that can be described as if x x crossed with y where that's two Mm. different books like the way that uh Babel was wrongly marketed as a cross between a secret history and Donovan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um, or, uh, so, I mean, most of the authors who wrote these, not all of them, but like, I would say about half of the authors of the books we mentioned are pretty established. And I would be surprised if the editing on Babel was mm. very intrusive um, just because of how it reads but like I think that we also need to understand like why like publishers are selecting things they think will sell and to what extent are they kind of determining the contents to what extent are they sort of reverse pitching writers on these kind of new chosen one narratives because they're so prevalent that it feels like not entirely organic mm. right I mean a chosen one fantasies have always been like the sort of chosen fantasy in science fiction and fantasy. I mean, Ender's Game is an extremely dark chosen one story. We both mentioned Ender's Game. Right. Um, I mean, uh, like, um, Wizard of Earthsea is a chosen one story. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah, I'm not saying, I mean, Lord of the Rings or whatever else. I'm not saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not saying like, that all these are bad. No, definitely not. No, like I, I cited both of those books because I mean everyone kind of universally agrees that they're um, classic, classics of the genre and perhaps also classics of uh, world literature. Um, so I don't know. I guess I guess one of the things I don't know if you're going to have the capacity to do this, Peter, or if it's something you want to investigate. But like as leftists, we should be considering material conditions. <laughs> So, like, what is actually going on in the publishing industry, and specifically science fiction fantasy publishing industry, which is dominated right now by Tor? Like, what kind of editorial decisions are they making? What kind of books are they soliciting? To what extent do these writers, 
want to do something different, perhaps. Right. Yeah, I, I really don't know. Um, I, I might be leaning too much into the idealism and thinking that this is more or less what people want to write, but it's, it's hard to say. And I will say as, like I've been saying, I've been, I've been looking into the, the wave of transgressive writing from the nineties. And if I was really going to do it right, which I don't, uh, I, I would, uh, try to study the presses in particular that were publishing them and the decision-making processes of more mainstream presses when people like Brett Easton Ellis would cross over. But that's a very time-consuming process, and I have a job, a a (laughs) full-time job. So speaking of time-consuming, we won't – I think we should probably wrap it up here and and not take up any more of the listeners' time. I, I, I thank you very much, Kit, for coming on. Um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll link to anything you ask me to link, link, well, within reason, the link <laughs> to in the show notes and, uh, maybe, maybe you can come on again sometime. I would love to. I mean, I think that we should definitely choose another book to read that yeah. we both expect to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's try. We'll, we'll, we'll try. All right, <laughs> folks. Uh, have a good one. Bye-bye.